It's really fun to do these things because we use this word gamification. Sometimes people like or don't like that word, but a lot of it, you get into motivations for doing something. And there, when you study like the behavioral science of it, you get to the intrinsic motivation, which is the thing you're trying to do to become more fit or learn a language or whatever it is that you're aspiring to do, the intrinsic motivation. And then you have the extrinsic motivation, which is just like numbers going up in that positive feedback loop. And when you can get the intersection of those things around helping somebody set this goal and make steady progress against it, and then giving them that reward around doing that, that's just like you kind of hack the psychology of it. And I think we'll see more and more of this in the future. Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Speaking of world-class companies, there are more incredible startups in the Kleiner portfolio than I've ever seen. When I was operating, I would have begged to be in some of these companies. If you're listening, and we don't do sponsorships on this show, so I figured I'd use this opportunity. If you're listening and you are inspired by the stories of my guests and you want to find the next incredible ride for you, reach out to me. Let's find an amazing job in the Kleiner portfolio. Now let's get to the episode. Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Juman. Great uh, to be here. Let me get this thing kicked off the same way I always do. And when I screw something up, just tell me and we'll go from there. You got your BS in econ and computer science from Penn. Then you went to become a consultant, spent two years doing that at McKenna Group, then a year as a consultant at Encode. Then you went to Millennia Partners, which was a venture firm, right? Spent two years as an associate there, cutting your teeth into venture. Then you got your MBA from MIT. Was Millennia in Boston as well? Yep. Yeah, okay. So you spent two years there. You did your MBA internship at Google, which is a pretty good one at the time of 2007. That's a good time to do an internship at Google. Then you went to Google in 2008 full-time as a director and head of games and BD for Google Play, which was the Android game thing. I, I butchered that. And then you became a principal for a new business development, spent or I'm sorry, I switched Other order. Yeah, principal for new biz dev from 2008 to 12, and then 2012 to 2016, director of BD for Google Play. Then you went to Duolingo. That was in 2016. First as the VP of sales, then as the CRO, and now as the chief business officer as of March of 2021. Along the way, you've been an advisor and investor to some pretty awesome companies, Dapper Labs included. How did I do? Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, the Google part too. Yeah, because I started off in this generalist group in new business development. And there it was fun because you're, you're right that getting into Google in like 2007, 2008, yeah. different time. The company was like a pretty big size by number of employees and it was, I don't know, 15, 20,000. But I landed in a group where I was surrounded by a lot of people that had been there very early. And so there you're with seemingly like infinite resources, but people that could tap, like I was in meetings with Larry Page with some frequency as well too. And so that was just amazing. Yeah. And so the, the first four years was just throwing stuff against the wall, seeing what sticks at Google. And then the last four years was the hyperscaling thing that was at Android and Google Play, and it was a blast, and that set me up for Duolingo. What was your first ever job where you got a paycheck? First, um, where like it was tax and all of that, so I, I definitely had some less glamorous jobs. Let's talk I, about those, not, well, not taxable income, just like someone paid you cash or whatever. As a kid, I, I grew up next to a golf course. And so in like my brothers and I spare time would go collect a bunch of golf balls. And then we, we sold them back to the thing. And so it's just like, so this is, I don't know, it was like a 10, 12 year old or whatever. And you make some pocket money or whatever. So that was fun. And then the first time that I actually got taxed, I was 
McDonald's and like, you know, back of the thing. And it was, my father thought that would be a, a good learning experience. You were working uh, at humbling. McDonald's. I, I did that. Yes. Yeah. So that was at some point in high school during yeah. the summers. I was, yeah, it was like, here you go. You're starting at the bottom. Right. But it was, it's an interesting company. It's a good thing to have done. Can I tell you something about actually specifically McDonald's? I was with all of the McDonald's executives in Chicago two days ago. And I think sometimes that certainly me, but others, especially in tech, think of these organizations as old and stodgy. These are institutions yes. of our culture and of our society. And these are really thoughtful people. McDonald's feeds 1% of the world every day. Yeah, yeah. The scale their, is nuts. Their cost per calorie yeah. to feed people is lower than anybody's, anybody's. Yeah. It's yeah. like the cheapest in the world. And so- I kind of think of it like, you know, sometimes we're embarrassed or ashamed by like having a McDonald's job. Like, I don't know. They employ a lot of people. They have over 40,000 franchises. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, McDonald's. And was that in Pittsburgh? It was, yeah. When I was in high school. So one of the things that when we were just chatting earlier, I asked you, it is the Peter Thiel question, but what's something that you believe that most don't? And your response, which I just want to unpack a little bit more, was that people take way too little risk in their life. What do you mean by that? For the conventional thing, it's very easy. Just inertia is a powerful force. And it's way too easy just to not have an opinion and to survey the crowd and just to have that influence your decisions. And for me, I mean, it's not like I've taken like the most risk. I'm not like some extreme anarchist risk taker, but doing it thoughtfully and strategically is really smart, right? And for me, part of it was when I was at Google and it was like, it's, a great employer, a great company, a great brand. There's some people that just never leave. And if you play that out, I had a great eight-year history and career there. But if you're there for, you know, 10 and 15 and 20, and I observe friends who get stuck in that situation. And all of us need that little nudge. And for me too, I just, I hope that part of my story here will be, I took a risk. At the time that I joined Duolingo, it felt like a risk and it's really worked out. And I, I just hope that that example helps give people like a little nudge to take that risk. Why do you think people get stuck? Money? Money is part of it. And then I think one thing that was formative for me was my career. And it was this time at McKenna Group. You'll notice I was there from 2000 to 2002. And then the next job picks up in 2003. So there's, there was a time that was, I don't know, five, six months there that I was not working because that company went out of business. That was like the trough of dot-com. And it was 2002. It was like a, a terrible time in tech. And for me, I just survived n number of rounds of layoffs and then just went down with the ship. And I just knew at that time, I, I was not even looking outside of anything. So since then, I am super focused on my job, but I'm always just keeping my eyes and ears open towards other things, being open to opportunities. And I think other people don't do that, or I, I think too few people do that. Money is a thing. And then it's just, it's too easy just to continue like one foot after the other, after the other, and not keeping yourselves open to the lucky break or the lucky opportunity that might be elsewhere. Yeah. Let's imagine that I was a superstar employer on your team and I was having this conversation with you. Would you also encourage that person to keep their options open as they're going through their career at, whether that's a, that was at Google or wherever? I really try to encourage that. I mean, I think that for great employees, you as the manager, the employee, you need to earn the right for that person to keep coming back day after day after day. 
And if, if you get into a situation where like, ah, it's like you must stay and don't ever look, it's, it's not healthy. And especially now too with COVID and remote work and the employment market is more dynamic than ever. And so I just think that create a, a great working environment, create great opportunities, especially for your stars. Let them know that they're stars and then just create as many opportunities for them as you can and have that conversation. Have that conversation of like, yeah, there, there might be other things that are out there and create an opportunity for them that's just better than anything else that they could get. Can you tell me a time where you've let your star know that she's a star? And what do you say? Yeah, it depends on the situation. As you ask that question, I think of a couple of different people. There's definitely somebody at Duolingo right now who's, who's done that, who joined relatively early, yeah. uh, about a year after me. And so when it was slightly crazy, when Duolingo wasn't yeah. the success that it is now. And the first thing is knowing what motivates them and having that conversation, because you can't just say like, this is what motivates people. So have that direct conversation around what that person is trying to get out of this company and this role. And so that's the most important thing. And then being a really big advocate for them broadly, visibly within the company to the CEO, to the board, and just looking to pull them into conversations as much as you can. And so there's things to, to say to the person just as you're delivering bonuses and salary increases and all these other things too. But just, I think it's like the little things that you say, but it's, it's probably more the things that you do in terms of listening and creating opportunities for them and creating visibility. And I'm, I never want to be the, the bottleneck myself. This person is our head of strategy and has she has an amazing relationship with Luis, our CEO. And there's like a lot of things that they're even working on stuff that I like may or may not be involved with, right? And so just never being the bottleneck, just creating so much opportunity for the person. Why do you think people don't do that? The obvious answer in my mind is that they're threatened, that maybe they're going to take your job. Yep. Is that right? I think that's is right. Is that the main reason? I think that's the main reason that people don't do it. How many times does that ever actually happen? Is that real? I think people imagine it much more often than it's real. Yeah. 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 It could be real, but in the cases where it's real and it's, you know, there, there's a bigger problem. But That's I, right. I, I think far, far, far more often it is imagined. I've, I've seen a number of cases where it's imagined and it's in there. When you find somebody in that spot, you just need to be like, hey, like just level with the person. This person is not a threat to you. Just chill out. Just maximize communication. I've been fortunate to be in those environments where I, because I try to bring that transparency. I've been fortunate, especially at Google and then also at Duolingo too, just being in environments where information is shared freely. And it's it's just really, when that can be the default, that when that's the, the broader culture, it's really great because sometimes you will have people who feel threatened and do hoard information. But when the dominant culture is sharing information, it just creates for a really powerful company. Yeah, and back to the risk thing. When you were at Google, the Google Play revenue in the span that you were responsible for it grew like 25x. So back to like the risk, how do you know when it's compounding at that growth rate, your opportunity cost continues to just get higher. And by the way, 2016, you have kids that are 10-ish, 8-ish, right? you're just having kids or they're like little, little kids at that point. Yep. So not only does your opportunity cost go up in terms of the responsibility that you have, the money that you're making, the growth rates of the organization, but also your family yep. and the personal commitments that you have. How did you at that point know what was your signal? Not necessarily that it was time to go to Duolingo, but that it was time to do something different. Yeah. So during that time at Google Play, it was a blast because when I joined Android, 
it was when Google Play was a very new brand. It had been Android Market, which was the way to get third-party software on Android devices like two, three months before I joined. And so it was funny because now like Google Play is a pretty well-known brand. When I joined, people would ask me what I did. And I said, I work for Google Play. And they would say, they wouldn't understand it. It was not a known brand. And I would say the app store for Android devices, right? And so it was, it was very new. And so, but it grew a lot. And at the time that I left, it was crazy because the first couple of years I was there, it was 500% growth for like a couple of years. It was just like, hold on to the rocket ship. Yeah. And just like, you're totally reinventing processes, not even annually, but monthly, quarterly, just constant reinvention of everything they're doing. I got good at hiring then because it was just trial by fire, right? Yeah. I, I was interviewing like hundreds of people every single year. And so that was really fun. And the thing that I noticed is it was still growing fast when I left, but it was slowing down quite a bit. We were not doubling anymore at the time that I left Google Play. But it's funny, it is the biggest business that Google doesn't talk about because it's at this point, it's even larger. But when I was there, it's like this multi-billion dollar business of very high margin revenue that's there. The first half of my time at Google was four years and then I found the next thing and it worked out really well. And then as Google Play was starting to slow down, I said like, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about doing something new. One of the things in terms of people not taking risks is there's a pretty fluid talent market within Google. And so you can switch teams, do another job there. For me, I looked around the company and said, there's nothing else here that I want to do. And so for me, I thought I didn't want to do a less good version. So some team at Google that I didn't really care about, right. where I was really blessed because I had a great experience my first four years at Google and then an even better one during my second four. And so I'm not going to do some lame thing next. And so I knew that I had to leave the company next and just kept my eyes open, as I said. And then when I found Duolingo, it was just, the right company, right role, right time, and decided to take the leap. You don't have to answer this if this is too personal, but this is your decision, but it's a team decision. Yeah. It doesn't just impact you. Yep. Especially because when you didn't ultimately go to Duolingo, you moved cross-country back to Pittsburgh with your kids and wife. How did that conversation go internally? Yeah, my wife is great. It happens that she is also originally from Pittsburgh. And yeah. so that was, for her, there was at least a draw. She is someone who's a lawyer and has a big career. And making that move was clearly going to be bad for her career. And so she, to her credit, can be incredibly selfless sometimes. And so she just said, we're going to do this. It actually was not a hard conversation at home. And it, you know, it, was, it definitely was a leap of faith. And there was at least something to look forward to in terms of the family side of that. Pittsburgh was interesting because there was, Duolingo was the only opportunity for me in that city. Duolingo was not making any money at that time. And if it became the case that the whole thing didn't work out, we would need to move again after that. Wow. But she was just great. And I was like the primary catalyst for making that decision. But we made that decision together. My kids were six and four, so they were kind of long for the ride. They yeah, didn't have yeah. like, too much of a voice in that, but it would obviously influence them as well too. But yeah, just it just speaks to having a great partner. When you said it wasn't that much of a decision, like she was like, we're doing this. Do you think that was because she saw your conviction and your enthusiasm for it? Yeah, that was part of it for sure. Because I've been somebody who I can get to conviction for certain things. I can be kind of very focused on, on things. One of the weird things too is I, even for like schools and stuff too, it's like I, I went to like a college and I went to a business school. And in both of those cases, I applied to exactly one school. And so, it was, which is kind of a weird thing for like yeah. a senior in high school to like, this was really early decision or whatever else too, but I can be oddly focused and decisive 
on some of these things. And so I guess when she saw that in me, where I was just really focused on making this work. Similarly, eight years before that, when I really pushed for Google in California, that was me really pushing that. Was for that was the job. That was the thing I wanted to do, yeah. And that really worked out too. And my wife, Amy, to her credit, she was a little more resistant on that case. But I mentioned I spent that summer in California as well. And right. she came along with me and that allowed her to be like, California's a pretty good yeah, place. Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So... You get to Duolingo, and this is where I want to spend the majority of, of this episode because the story is absolutely incredible. There are very few episodes that I have the privilege of doing where the head of go-to-market goes from zero to public company. In fact, it might only be Chris Degnan I've had. There's very few, and these are the stories that I love to tell the most. In 30 seconds... Can you tell the audience what is Duolingo? Yeah, so Duolingo is the most popular way to learn a language. And so we are a language learning app. It's been installed by more than half a billion people. And the thing that we do different is we make it fun and engaging. So what we've found for us is the hardest thing about learning a language or really the hardest thing about learning anything on your own is staying motivated. So what we've found this way to make something fun and engaging, it shares my background of gaming and gamification with a product that works. And so that's what Duolingo has historically been. And then now we're broadening it to more in different fields. We have this language assessment product that's been very successful. We have an early childhood literacy product that's been in the market since last year. We're developing a math app as well. So we really started and focused on language, but now we're broadening out to a broader education company. You mentioned it, there's 500 million downloads or more there's 40 million active monthly users or more at this point. There are more people in the U.S. learning on Duolingo than there are foreign language learners in all U.S. high schools combined. The scale is pretty amazing. It's incredible. And I'm setting this up because it didn't start this way. People who complete half a course on Duolingo learn as much as students taking four university semesters of language education. Investors include NEA, Private investors like Tim Ferriss, General Atlantic, Kleiner Perkins. We joined two years before you did. We, we years, invested. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And we invested in 2014. You came in in September of 2016. When KP invested, the company had 34 employees. That was the Series C. There was 25 million registered users and 12.5 million active users at that point. One of the first things that struck me as I was doing more and more on this, 34 employees, Series C. Yeah. 500 plus million dollar valuation. Yeah. <laughs> the world has changed, yeah. 34 employees, Series C. In some ways, the world has changed, but in others, I'm like, pre-revenue company. Yeah. 500 yep. million. Yep, yep. That kind of reminds me of today, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that, uh, that was, yeah, at the time that I joined, yeah, no revenue, half billion dollar valuation. Holy like, yeah. smokes. But sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. In so, our case, it did. Like, even at that point, like, those were not the valuations then. Yeah, yeah. So you're walking in, moving the family across country as the first leader of monetization. There's zero monetization going on at this company. There's just a bunch of active users. And, you know, as Chris Merritt from Cloudflare said, I asked him, Chris, how did you know that this was a good company? He said, the freaking phones wouldn't stop ringing. Uh, but they didn't know what to do. Yeah, yeah, They just, yeah, they just yeah. had this incredible user base with a very product-oriented CEO. And so you move the family across country. You have a $500 million valuation plus. Yep, yep. 
at least, by the yep. way, that's the minimum bar, that you have to then build a monetization strategy to. How long did it take before your first oh shit moment? <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not that long. Yeah, I mean, it, so there's a reason that the company commanded that valuation, right? Like the team is amazing, the product's amazing, the audience was big, but the thing at the time that I arrived that the company had clearly not figured out was monetization. One of the things that convinced me to take the job was that we clearly didn't have a plan for monetization, but it was clear to me in speaking Luis before I joined that he was completely serious about the mission and providing access to education, but he was also totally serious about building a big business. You could see it, you could feel it in terms of what was there. And so I was like, I knew that foundation was there, but we didn't really have a plan in terms of how to get there too. And we were throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what stuck and definitely like some oh shit moments. I mean, monetization at the time that I joined was three engineers and a designer, and they were all mostly just out of school. And so it, it was, you know, at the time that I joined, I was like 60, 70 employees. And so it had grown since the time that the Kleiner invested around like 34, yeah, 35 employees. It grew employees. by 30 employees in yeah. two years. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. 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 But still the allocation of people to monetization, it was a very small team and there was not leadership around that. Duolingo is, is a very product centric company overall product-centric monetization, product-led growth, that whole approach too. And so one of the biggest things was from like a people in a process perspective, starting to put that in place. Because those first three to six months was all about laying that foundation. And there were some really key things that happened around that time. I mentioned like monetization when I joined was like three engineers and a designer. So it's like, okay, if, if you're like product-led, you need to find the right product leader around all of that. And so about a month after I joined, we hired a senior PM to come in and be the monetization leader for product for the company. And that, that was a, a really key hire for us. And then about a month after that, a really early employee and engineering leader who had been working on like learning in other parts of the company moved over as well too. So some of the good things about Duolingo is we're in Pittsburgh. We were just reassembling the resources and the people to orient the company towards monetization. And it was really important to get the best people we could in the best leaders that we could into those roles at the company. So the revenue was well under 1 million run rate when you joined. I mentioned Degnan, Chris Degnan earlier of Snowflake. It's very different. When he joined and he's figuring out monetization, that's like going out to B2B customers and doing the missionary sale of take a bet on us, do a 10K POC, let's do a 50K land or expand from there. And this is like a very simple question, but when you first look at this and, and they just say, Bob, this is yours. What was your first instinct? I don't even know where I would start. Yeah. Go to market at Duolingo is different than I think most of the people that you have on your show, right? Yeah. The motion is different. It looks more like Asana or yep. Atlassian yep. or Twilio. Or even more product led too, because I mean, for us, the primary way that people find Duolingo is through the app stores. I was very familiar with that business coming from Google Play. And so there, so we just have this benefit of every single day, there's hundreds of thousands of people who are installing Duolingo for the first time. And so that's just like an extremely powerful top of the funnel for us of people who are coming. And I mentioned the company is so focused on engagement. Once those people find the product, staying there. And so that, that's how we do it. But when we thought about revenue, we tried a couple of different things. But the thing that ultimately worked and the thing that as I came in, we were most excited about was this product-led growth and product-led monetization. So we have all of these people who are active users already and new users, like hundreds of thousands of them who are coming in every day. 
And it was basically how to convert that into a big business. And so that was the real key. And so it was around getting those people, getting that product leader, getting that engineering leader, talking with Bing as well too. Like Bing was great. Bing, who is uh, my partner at Kleiner, who's on the board. Yeah, Bing leaned in fast in a big way too. I remember my second week on the job, we had a board meeting and Bing kind of added onto the board meeting and spent a whole day doing like whiteboarding sessions at, at Duolingo as well too. And was just, he was up there doing like forever OKRs and like setting these really ambitious goals, both around what the metrics look like and what the team looks like and what the process looks like. And that was just really helpful because one thing is hiring into Google and Mountain View is a little bit easier than hiring into Duolingo at that stage in Pittsburgh, right? It was a situation where I was trying to be as efficient and resourceful with what we already had, which was product and engineering leaders, and then just really smart advisors who could help show us the way to get there too. So I was just doing whatever I could. And Duolingo is not a game, but it's game-like. And one of the things that's really attractive about games is there's a really big audience. There's, you know, for a lot of games, there's tens or even hundreds of millions of people or players who are playing that game. There's an oftentimes a very small percentage who pay. There can be like a single digit percentage of people who pay, yep. yet it becomes a really, really, really big business. Because there's differences between how Duolingo monetizes and how games monetize, obviously. But that characteristic of really big audience, few payers, really big business is pretty interesting. And so we started iterating through that. So iterating through testing advertising, testing in-app purchases, testing subscriptions as well, too. And so Duolingo, when I arrived, had this really interesting culture and muscle around A-B testing and experimentation. And so there it was a matter of setting up the processes with the product leader, with the eng leader, with some of Bing's guidance, just to iterate through and find the way to monetization. Kleiner's typical archetype of investments is very technically oriented CEOs yep. that know product very well. And we believe that we can help them build muscle on bringing that product to market. So I have a job. Yep. So I'll give you an example. This was two years ago. We did an investment, genius CEO sold his last company, huge outcome, starting another one. And he didn't have a sales bone in his body. And my instinct is always to say that the CEO should really sell the first 10 to 20 customers in a B2B business. In this case, I think the CEO should get to at least 100 or a few hundred K of ARR before we bring in a sales leader or a salesperson or anything because it builds empathy. And it builds understanding of how difficult that process is. And so I said, I think we should bring in a, an early salesperson, like before we've done a single deal, because he didn't have a single bone of sales in his body. And it was early and brought him in. And three months in, I get a call from my partner. Hey, he wants to fire this guy. And then I get a call from the CEO. I think, I think we want to let him go. What do you think? And I said, no way. I said, but why? <laughs> Tell me why. And he said, well, he's not sending as many meetings as me. And I was like, you're the CEO. Yeah. Your last company is like a 10 plus billion dollar company. You can get a meeting with anybody you want. The whole point of this is to try and build something repeatable. You are not repeatable in any way. And so anyway, now two years later, this company has found product market fit in a very significant way. That first salesperson is still here growing into an amazing sales leader at the company. That story is not uncommon. Yep, yep. Did it feel like that at all when you joined? Yeah, I mean, I joined at a time when the company was kind of first taking monetization seriously, where it kind of is crazy that it was five years into the company's history at Duolingo, 
And before I was there, we had a PL, but it wasn't treated super serious. It's kind of amazing what you can get away with. But at the time that, that I joined, Bing was like, yeah, for the last three years, the company said it would do 5 million and has done less than one. Yeah. And like you, you can maybe do that once, but if you do that three times, it's like, all right, you need to move on. And so there was this interest in doing it. And so Luis, he did not want to put ads in Duolingo. He did not want to put in-app purchases in Duolingo. We had not yet done subscriptions till the next year, but he was willing to do that. And so some of those things had started to happen because we're not like those outbound sales, but Luis had this ambition to build this big company and monetization is definitely not his favorite thing, thankfully, right? Because the thing that inspires the mission of the company and the vision of the company is around learning. But we see how monetization is, is a key part of that. And Luis understood that. And so we, we had those first awkward attempts in 2016, right? And stuff was, we were doing things that was different than previously and it didn't quite work. And one of the things that was different in my case was it's very product-led. And Luis is a product genius. His intuition and instincts and just depth of knowledge is incredible. And for me, one of the trickier things was I'm not a product person. I am, you know, you read my background, like by business people standards, like I have a computer science degree. I'm technical by a business person standard. And during my time at Google, I worked very closely with product people. But part of the things that were just tricky earlier on is how do all our roles fit together? And even now we've found a way to make it work. But I mentioned like Luis is in there. I'm in there. Our monetization head of products in there. Our monetization head of engineering's in there. And Part of it was all of us feeling each other out and learning how to work together. And, and that definitely took time and, and was awkward to start. I asked Bing, what was the lowest point of the company? And he said, right before revenue. So call it probably right around when you joined and that fell on your plate. If you can share and if not, no problem. But what does awkward mean when you say awkward? Like, what does that mean? Just disagreements? <laughs> disagreements. For us, that means lack of talking, too. Because it's, it's a company full of engineers for the most right, part. Right? Right, so there's right, like right. many awkward silences and something. For us, part of it now, too, like Duol <laughs> Duolingo at its best is just like doing well and like so much positive energy. And we get into that flow. And when that happens, it's magic. And yeah, the awkward part we're still getting better at, at giving feedback and some of those pieces as well, too. And so the awkward part is just like awkward silence. Somebody says something, nothing. <laughs> right, right, right. And for you, was it frustrating being like, hey, why am I getting a hard time when I just came here? We've been telling being in the board that we're going to hit a plan for revenue for years that we haven't done. I'm doing better than that. You know, like, was that kind of like, what the hell? Yeah, I mean, we've found a way to combine the monetization, the business part, because the focus still is on the product. It's kind of amazing how disciplined we've been around being a product that's just beloved by so many people too. And because even today, there's like a number of things like we could in the short term increase revenue, I don't know, a half dozen different ways. But for us, that would probably cost us some user growth or some user trust or some other things as well too. And so we've just we've really tried to maintain true to the vision and the mission and do that piece too. And so it's, it's a tricky thing. And so knowing when to strike that balance, right? We have a really big culture on A-B testing. And there, as we started into monetization, there can be a balance between growing bookings and what impact that has on user growth as well too. And so knowing how to make those trade-offs, developing the frameworks and the decision-making processes of doing that. And so 
it's interesting because as, as I come in and the first couple of years, we made steady progress. But 2016, I just arrived. 2017 was like a good year, but it wasn't crazy good. 2018 was another good year. And then once we hit 2019, it was just like our business was just like humming. Off into the races. Yeah, yeah. How long were you in the wilderness for trying to figure out anything? It depends on the, how deep into the wilderness, right? Because for us, the first three to six months was just a mess. And like where you're going back to your house and yeah. saying, honey, what, what, do we do? what did we do? <laughs> yeah. So there was that. But then for honestly, like two years, it was still pretty hard for two years, 24 plus months. And there we just, around that time, we just found our identity and stuff just started working to such a degree that it relieved some of the pressure. Yeah. Was there any early moments or signals it's almost unfair of me to characterize it this way because startups aren't built this way. There's never just a day where you wake up and things start working. It almost is so surreal the way that it happens. And it's so slow yeah. and progresses in such a way that bricks and bricks and bricks have been stacked on each other. And you don't just put one more brick and then all of a sudden the gate to Narnia opens. But was there any things early monetization strategies, early things that you put in the product, early hires that you felt gusts of wind at your back that yep. were super encouraging, that gave you the courage to continue to, to move forward. Yep. On the people side and on the process side. So I mentioned that product leader and then that engineering leader who was the first couple of months. And then there, the person who leads strategy for Duolingo, I hired about a year after I joined. And that was, that helped a ton. And there, somebody to help think through difficult problems. The company was great around throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what stuck. Hiring somebody who was like super smart, super strategic, great communicator who could just help us think through hard problems and resource allocation problems. And that was like, wow, for a moment, this is making things easier. This is, yeah. that didn't happen. So that was there. And then from like a process or metrics perspective, we just got in the cadence. I had mentioned before I joined, the, the company didn't have any forecasting approach at all, right? It was just kind of like pick a number and, yeah. and do a thing. And so we, we built a bottoms up. Our forecasting approach that first quarter I was there was a total disaster. We were just kind of picking numbers. But a big thing was, you know, I joined in September of 2016. So we were later then. Now we're more disciplined with the planning process. But when I first joined, it was November, December of like 2016. What's our number going to be for 2017? And they're like, how ambitious should we be? And I, and I remember that part too, because that, that was really important, laying that scaffolding for how we're going to work and then setting that process in place in terms of how we're going to go chase that number. Yeah. And that was like a, a really critical time period. Did you ever feel like you were stuck in the middle? What I mean by that is you don't remind me of a rah-rah sales guy. Correct. You don't remind your CEO of a very, very technical product guy. Correct. You're kind of stuck in the middle, yep, you know? Yep, yep. So you can't fit the stereotype of that chest-thumping sales leader, but you also can't fit the PM, yep. really, really technical product guy. Yep, I am still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up functionally, <laughs> but it's like, it, it's worked out so far. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, no, totally. Oh man, that's funny. There's a lot of people listening to this. Man, I know there's a lot of people in the Kleiner portfolio listening to this. Any tips on changing culture in the early days from product to revenue and go-to-market orientation? There are a couple things. As I was trying to fit in and be part of the company, and I was just speaking to people that I had known, some of the better advice that I got was 
don't try to fit in by your performance. Like that's really important. But if you only just focus on that, that is not enough. Focus on getting to know your colleagues and CEO and founders as, as people. And you can forget that part too. You need to like totally execute against what you're doing. But for, for me that I didn't totally fit in when I joined, right? Both of our co-founders like CS PhDs and like very technical, great people though too. But, you know, I, I mentioned I, I had kids, like I was the first member of the team to join who had young kids. And so that's- 70 people in. Of like the the senior yeah, team. Yeah, 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 wow. yeah. And, yeah. And that was, you know, it, it's there we were hiring a lot of people right at undergrad. So totally. it's like just kind of a different profile. And so there- Out of like um, Carnegie Mellon or something. That was kind of the default. Yeah, that's, yeah okay. that's like the, and so just some differences. And I'm somebody who works hard, right? It's one of these things of like, hey, if there's work to be done, I'm there until everything's done. But if the work's done and you're just all hanging out, I had other things that I cared a lot about, right? And so yeah. just some of that was really important and thinking through how you fit in across a lot of different dimensions. And so that was an important piece for me because I'm, I'm trying to succeed and hit the number and you can, you can be too focused on that and think like, hey, if I'm just successful from a metrics perspective, that's going to be enough. It, it Just focusing on building those relationships was something that I probably didn't do enough in the first six or 12 months. And when I started doing more of that, it, it really made a difference. Yeah, that's good advice. I got to ask you, knowing what you know now, would you do it again? Well, I mean, knowing how it turned out, yeah, sure, fine. But no, but, but even, I mean, knowing that. what you know now about how hard it is, yep. would you join another pre-revenue startup, not knowing the outcome? Yeah, you don't know the outcome in advance, but it's been great. The answer is yes. And then it's how do you know, because there's a lot of companies out there. So how do you know? which one could be that special one that's worth the pain, that's worth all the struggle that you go through. And they're just, everybody says, focus on the people, but it's like, hey, you're going to spend the next five plus years with these people. And so is I would evaluate anything in the future or other people would evaluate something just really as much as you can get to know the, the key people in the company, because that's the thing that is is most important and then make sure it's a problem that you want to work on, that that's something you just want to steady progress working on it. I mean, for, for me, education in general is, you know, I, I spent time in gaming and there's all this time spent on gaming and towards what end. And so my ability to at Duolingo take what I had learned from a gaming background and apply that towards education and helping people develop habits and a daily habit on education was was really great. And so if those things are in place, if you find a really amazing team working on a really compelling product and problem, then yeah, go for it. It's really refreshing to hear you say that. I get pinged a lot by our audience, those that are listening right now on, hey, Juven, I'm inspired by your guests. I'm inspired by how brave they are. I'm inspired by the risk that they take. Yep. And you went through the dark days of company building and came out the other end and or raising your hand, like, I would do it all over again. Totally. And sometimes I think hard things are worth doing. Yep. Because yep. they're hard. Yep. Um, yeah, so it's really cool. In terms of my decision process for Duolingo as well, one thing I want to call out is before I joined, I talked to a couple of friends who had been in similar types of roles where they were not founders, but they were exec team members at earlier stage startup. One guy who was at Reddit, so he saw like some some seriously like messy stuff during the early days there. But in like three different people, one in like a sales role, one in a product role, one in more of a hybrid closer to me role. And there, I just remember speaking with them and kind of similar maybe to the dynamic that your audience is getting to the guests of just being like, these are my people. 
this is my tribe. And, and that was actually helpful in motivating me to be like, hey, Google's a great company, but for somebody who's going to be there their whole career, I felt less affinity to, to that person that just kind of stays the course and a lot more affinity towards the person who takes the risk. And that helped me make that decision. Yeah. You know, the other thing that I think of when people think about these decisions and they think about all of the other things on the periphery of the decision, they often overinflate the meaning of those things because they don't want to actually take the risk. Yeah. And so they'll they'll create a larger perception of that perceived risk than it actually is. So like, I remember personally, when I moved to Chicago, I'd never been to Chicago. I didn't know a single person in Chicago. And I was going for an objectively just great opportunity for me, for my career. And I had all of these fears of where am I going to eat? Who are my friends going to be? What am I going to wear? All the things that always get settled in the dust, yep. no matter what, they yep. always get figured out. Yep. And ultimately, in some weird way, when you're going for a mission and a job that you're so excited about, it's almost easier yes. because you're so focused on that job that all the other things actually matter way less yep. than if you were to say, I'm going because I want to try a new city. That becomes a lot harder. Those things actually do carry more meaning and value. Do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Okay, so we get through the early days. So your first year, how much revenue did the company do after your, you joined in September? So let's call it of 2016. So in 2017, how much revenue did Duolingo do? Do you remember? Yeah, about 13 million. 13? Yep. Went from zero to 13. Yep. We hit about like one, kind of like rounds up to one in 2016. Yes, yeah, so we went from one to 13 the first year. There was a reason why Duolingo was, was valued the way it was. I mean, we had this big audience. And at that time, we were finally taking this product-led approach and giving ourselves permission to make money from our learning app. And so there was this latent potential that was there that you could see it. When you start from such a low base, you can have like a, totally. a big multiplier. But yeah, it, it was clear that we were onto something. So that was 2017, you got to 13. Yep. And then how about 2018? Yeah, these are bookings because it was the thing that we focused on more. It was 36. 36. Yep. So that summer, Bing, I talked to him before this, obviously, and Bing, who's on the board, he said, I joined Luis at an offsite about three summers ago, which was 2018. So like you're in the inflection of going to 36, probably somewhere in the 20s at this point. So the question that I posed to Bing was, was there a moment in the company where everyone looked at each other realizing we have something, like we have a tiger by the tail? And being sure the story, I was at an offsite with Luis where he asked what it would take to be a public company. And I said, 100 million of run rate. So he set that as a company goal. And he said, no other exec at that point was really thinking about that because we were just so quickly, we went from the wilderness to insane revenue growth. Do you remember that time when it was like, okay, we're going for it? Yeah, yeah. We were finding our identity as a business. And so that was a, a really big part because we were testing across stuff because in 2017, I, I mentioned that was the number. The first part of that year, we actually drove most of that through ads because that was the easier thing to start. And, and advertising is still like ad monetization is still part of what we do, but we have become a consumer subscription company. And so there, so it was basically in 2018 that we acknowledged that and that became our identity and then once we had that alignment, then we just turned the, the Duolingo machine against it and we just started optimizing everything and away we went. That's amazing. And at that point, were you then staffing a team or was it still a pretty slim team? Because it was revenue was always funneled through a product lens. Yep. 
That was the main thing. Yeah. So we, we've stayed quite lean in terms of business functions. It's pretty great, honestly, because some people measure by like however many tens or hundreds or thousands. If you can have a company and you can have these amazing metrics of users and bookings and revenue, and it's really resource efficient, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. So company went public in what, a few months ago? Yep. Yeah. Congratulations. It's a six and a half billion company now. Amazing. In retrospect, what do you think of the timing of that IPO? You think it was too late, too early? You wanted to gnaw off some more chicken on the bone? Or what, like, what do you think? <laughs> I think from the time that I joined, it was the right timing. There's other questions around, like with regards to monetization, do Luis and Severin, our co-founders, wish they had started the right time, earlier, too late? I think they wish they had started a little bit earlier. But with regards to going public, I think we went at the right time. There's a couple things there. One is Luis has wanted to go public for a while. And so it's, it's really good because when you find a founder CEO who really embraces that, who doesn't want to just stay private as long as possible, but really embraces the challenge of operating a public company. So he's been that case for a while. I remember seeing Luis on television, CNBC, whatever, in 2017 and being like, we're taking this company public. I mentioned what our metrics were then. I was like, man, it's... so Sub, he, sub 10. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. He, he had this, I was like, all right, all right. So he is just this incredibly ambitious guy. And so it really helps that he's had this seed for a long while. And so we, we work to build the business and to grow into the valuation. And then another thing that was really key is getting the team in place. And so there, we were really fortunate where right in like the weeks and months before COVID, we brought on a couple of really key people setting us up for our IPO, where we brought on a CFO, a general counsel, and a head of FP&A in like the month before COVID. And so there, it was just really helpful for us to have a complete team, an IPO-ready team, and then we could just continue to build the business through the course of, of COVID, but we didn't have to go through these super critical hires and interviewing people in like this weird Zoom world. And so having that team in place, and then from that point was another 15 to 18 months until we went public. Not too long ago, you were an executive at a pre-revenue startup five years ago. Now you're in the S1, on the filings, you're a public company executive. Does that suck? I was talking to Chris Degnan about this. He's like, it's, a, it's different. Yep. You know, it's definitely different. And the motivation is very different. He's had to recalibrate what motivates him. How do you think about that? Yeah, yeah. We're probably too new into it to figure out exactly what it's like. For us, we overall, we have a goal to continue operating as similarly as we did previously as a private company because we, we were doing a lot of things right. And we have a really important culture at the company, including around just trying to be as transparent as we can internally within the company. And we were also like a very mission-focused company as well. And so we absolutely don't want it to be the case that we go public and all of a sudden it's a right turn and we're a different company, right? Yep. We, we want to be as much the same as we can. Our finance team is, you know, growing and there's a different level of discipline and rigor, especially with regards to forecasting. And so we're continuing to change and upgrade processes. But for the most part, as we talk internally, we want this to be an enabler. Luisa talked about how we're entering the major leagues by doing this. And we, we've built a really strong team, a really complimentary team to a lot of people that have been in place for a while. And so, so far, so good. But I, I know that there's a lot of scrutiny as a public company and we feel like we're ready for it. Yeah, it's amazing, man. There's some really cool things that are now happening in this business. Duolingo is now accepted by most U.S. colleges as a test of English as a second language. 
It's a $49 test. In 2020, it was bought almost 350,000 times, like as a certification, certified by universities. How incredible is that? Yeah. I mean, what do you think about language? I have a very strong opinion on the value of language. And, you know, my parents immigrated here from Iran. I didn't speak English till I was in first grade. First grade, I was in kindergarten. I couldn't speak English. I made fun of a lot. And learning Spanish was very easy for me because I had a muscle around learning language at a very young age that I'm now so grateful for. And I think what people that don't speak a second language don't understand or that English just as a first language is that language is a culture carrier. It is one of the key tenets of the way that you can express where you're from. And it's a core part of the identity that makes you who you are. I think that is such a special mission. I got emotional. I'm, you know, like 400,000, 350,000 times people are getting certified through this platform. How cool is that? It's amazing because we're known for our language learning app. We have this second business that from last year has really broken out and becoming very successful around English language proficiency. It's something that started as a hackathon project. It's, it's really personal for Luis too, because the way that our test is used is for people who live in other countries where English is not the native language. If they want to come study in the United States for college or grad school, they need to take an English proficiency test. And the primary one is this test called the TOEFL, the test of English as a foreign language. It's something that's been the test for decades and decades. There's not a lot of innovation. Luis has a personal story too, because he, he grew up in Guatemala. The way that this test is not very user-friendly, when he was to take this test, they didn't have any more seats left in his country. He actually had to fly to a different country, which was like not the easiest thing, not the safest thing, just in order to take a test to be considered to study in the United States. And so it was a really personal thing for him in terms of using technology, bringing more access, breaking down barriers. And so a very personal thing. And so we created this online test just to make it more accessible because there, there's so many parts of the world where they have these testing centers, but changing from that to being able to take this test anywhere, anywhere you have a laptop is just incredibly valuable. And so for us, just taking more of the education system and digitizing it and bringing it online is remarkably powerful. So we've had this really innovative product for a while. Higher education is slow to change, but the pandemic is resetting a lot of behaviors. And, and so for the last bunch of years, we worked on this test. And then last year, we found product market fit for our test last year. And it's just, it's really rewarding to see. And as, as we increasingly think about what motivates us and the reason that Duolingo exists, part of it is around just changing people's lives. And this test, I mean, our language app does it, but it, it does it in less visible ways sometimes. Our, our test is, is really remarkable of people who are able to study at these really special places who might not have even known they existed and weren't able to meet the requirements of doing so. And we're enabling them to take this step. And it's really amazing to be part of that process. Has this company changed the way that you think about the value of language? Has it changed the way that you would want to impart the spirit of learning a language to your kids? Has it changed any of that perspective for you? It has it because I'm a kid who grew up in Pittsburgh, right? We all start in the same place, but it is for my kids even just to observe, they observe their parents' careers. And, and from the time that they were, you know, four and six to now nine and 11, that's, they've seen this thing. And, and it's cool that they're surrounded by other kids who are 
not native English speakers as well too, and just having some of those experiences. And so it has definitely encouraged me to show them more parts of the world and travel. And I think for them as well, creating a product out in the world, their kids, they play games, they use YouTube, but creating a product that can help them learn and specifically learn languages that feels more fun, that feels more like the other products that they spend all day using. That's really like trying to meet them there, right? Trying to both inspire and for them to understand the importance of language, but to give them a tool that they would love to use to help them get there. That's amazing. One of the things that you had mentioned earlier was the way that you've gamified the platform. And one of the key tenets of that gamification strategy was streaks. And so a streak is a way to tell the user that they have X amount of days stacked on top of each other, that they've learned Spanish or Chinese or whatever it is. That drove a lot of yes. signups, right? Yes. And yep. a lot of usage. Yep. I have a meditation app that I use every day. And it absolutely works, the streaks thing. In fact, even more so the accountability, the social accountability of these streaks. We have a company internally at Kleiner, Future Fitness, that tells me how many days in a row, you know, and then I get a reward if it's seven. My Apple Watch, if I work out seven days in a row, I get a star. Yep. It's nothing. Yep. Yep. Like I'm a five-year-old. I just imagine there's some interesting learnings that you all had about human behavior and incentives and the ways that those work when you were putting this stuff together. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's really fun to do these things. And because we use this word gamification, sometimes people like or don't like that word, but a lot of it, you get into motivations for doing something. And there, when you study like the behavioral science of it, you get to the intrinsic motivation, which is the thing you're trying to do to you know become more fit or learn a language or whatever it is that you're aspiring to do, the intrinsic motivation. And then you have like the extrinsic motivation, which is just like, numbers going up in that positive feedback loop. And when you can get the intersection of those things around helping somebody set this goal and make steady progress against it, and then giving them that reward around doing that, that's just like, you kind of hack the psychology of it. And I think we'll see more and more of this in the future. It's amazing. Are you hiring? If so, what are you hiring for? Are there any key roles that you wanna shout out now? And what's the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah, always yeah. growing. So uh, maybe two that I would point out now. So looking to build a muscle around M&A and Corp Dev. And so somebody coming in to lead that function is one. And then a second is do we continue to build out our strategy team, have a director on our strategy and biz ops team that's another really important role for us. And so those are two that I would call out. And in terms of getting in touch, Twitter's a good spot. My handle is just at my last name, at me's. Cool. Last question. What does the word grit mean to you? Grit is, you know, because there's been some hard days that are there, right? And so for me, it means just somebody who is always looking to make that forward progress, just continuing to make forward progress, even in the face of pain or negative feedback or somebody who is very resilient and the person is unstoppable. And I've, there've been times for me when I've had that, where it's the voice in my head is like, just keep going. That's what I hear. And I've, I've seen that other people at, at Duolingo as well, too. And, and so it's part of what makes the company special. Congrats, man. Congrats on an amazing run. Glad we could have been a small part of it. Amazing. Looking forward to what's next. Bob Mees, thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much, Jubin. Great to be here. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes with CROs from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Vox, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, 
subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.